picking up in Numbers tonight, but before we do, I actually want to turn to the New Testament, uh, to 1 Corinthians, and the reason is because now we're going to, tonight, as we enter chapter 11 of Numbers, we're going to get into the meat of the book. Everything we've read so far has been preparatory. Last week, I compared the book of Numbers to a road trip. And until the very last chapter last week, the first nine chapters are just taking the tire pressure, making sure it's full of gas, double-checking your luggage list. It's all preparatory. And then they finally start to march, and we finish in chapter 10 as they finally start to march out towards God's promises after, um, after more than a year sat at the base of Mount Sinai. They're now finally moving forward. And as we'll see, everything goes off the rails tonight. And so it's worth considering as we look at, um, at, at the foolishness of the uh, Israelites, of their, as we look at their unbelief and of their sin and as it's repeated and kind of their dirty laundry is aired right in front of us, it's worth asking, why should we read this? What is the value to us today? What, what is the importance of this for us um, who are not in this time, who are not in the wilderness, who are not Jewish, but now um, after what Jesus has done, is there any significance for us? And it's important that we ask this question because it's very easy to read this passage and shake our head. It's very easy to read through numbers and just think about um, how crazy this streak of rebellion and stubbornness and blindness is that runs through Israel. Um, but, but I think a good way to read the Bible is to read it like the authors of Scripture read it. You see, one of the neat things about the authors of Scripture is that they're also readers of Scriptures. The Bible dialogues with itself. So, for example, we won't do this tonight, but in your own free time, if you turn to Psalm 78, you'll see the same history that we're walking through in the book of Numbers recounted, specifically in the context of tell this story to your children. Don't leave these things hidden in the dark, in the histories. Why would they want to tell stories of their failures? Okay, if you read Psalm 78, you'll start to get a feel for that answer. Paul, the apostle also grew up in a Jewish household with Jewish heritage, but here he's speaking to a non-Jewish church, a church that's primarily made up of Gentiles, of non-Jewish people, and he speaks of these self-same passages, all of the passages he quotes um, uh, or refers to in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 or from Numbers, except for the very first one, which is from the book of Exodus. But he's walking through the same history of Israel with their failures, and he does it in a way that helps us to understand and where our perspective should be tonight. And so notice how he begins here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink from they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. And so notice here, not only does he call these folks, Israel, our fathers, speaking to Christians, but he draws some parallels, and the parallels aren't with your before Christ days, aren't with, uh, with Gentiles or foreigners or be people who didn't know God, but he says, just like you have been baptized, in a sense, so was Israel. 
The cloud covered them. They walked through the Red Sea together. Just like you partake of communion, church in Corinth, so also they had the uh, miraculously provided manna from heaven. Um, They were baptized into Moses as leader, as intercessor, as representative, as prophet above all prophets, just as we have been baptized into Christ. And so what he's saying here is when we read this, we should read in some sense as if we're in the same boat. We should read it as if these things apply directly to us. It's not that when we read it, we shouldn't see Israel as foolish. We just shouldn't see them as uniquely foolish. It's not that we shouldn't see them as unbelieving. We just shouldn't see that unbelief as unheard of. Okay? In fact, notice how he continues in verse 5. He says, nevertheless, most of them, with, uh, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it was written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things, he reiterates in verse 11, happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. He says, these things were written down for our benefit of examples of what not to do. And then notice how he finishes here. I think this is an important point. He says in verse 12, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Anyone who looks at that book and goes, Ah, those aren't issues I deal with. He says, Watch out. That's a dangerous place to be. And then he finishes by saying, verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He says, what happened to them isn't unique and what happens to you isn't unique. The things that you go through, the things that you're tempted by, that's not something you deal with in isolation. These aren't your personal problems. They aren't particularly Jewish problems. They're not even merely human problems. It's all humans, including Christians, that deal with these things. And then he reminds us right in the middle that the same God who was faithful to Israel is still available to us today in the midst of of our temptation. So we should read these things in the book of Numbers um, and they should make us wary. They should open our eyes a little bit. They should um, help us to recognize that what we're reading uh, is a streak we find in our own hearts. Even if it's in the inner recesses and uh, locked away in corners we don't look in, um, all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have rebelliously gone their own way. And so what we see in Israel, if we look close enough, we will also see in ourselves. Let's go back to the book of Numbers and we'll pick up in the book of Numbers chapter 11. Just to put the icing on the cake. When we read the Old Testament, There's another New Testament commentary on the Old Testament that we should always keep in mind, and that's the words of Jesus himself. Jesus gives us an interpretive key for the Old Testament. Speaking to the religious leaders who know the Old Testament back and forward, he says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think they have life, but it is they that testify of me. 
If you look in Luke chapter 24, he's speaking to his disciples and he explains to them all the things beginning with Moses and through all the prophets concerning himself. He said, if you don't understand the Old Testament in correlation with Jesus, you don't understand it at all. Okay? And so it's helpful to ask, well, how do we do that in passages like this? And Brian Chappell, the preacher who I enjoy, who um, wrote a book specifically on understanding the Bible as Christ-centered, as all about Jesus, he says basically the Old Testament, or the whole Bible, in fact, points to Jesus in four different ways. Okay? Um, those include prophecies and promises that just say, here is what I'm going to do that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It includes pictures of Jesus. For example, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, he says that rock that gave them nourishing water, that is Christ. He says there's something uh, iconic about that rock that's comparable to what Jesus does. Um, Another way that the Old Testament prepares us for Jesus is that it shows us our need for him. Okay? What we find is here is Israel delivered and sustained and yet still in need of a deliverer and a sustainer. Um, They are in need of a savior even from themselves like we are today. And if you're interested, the fourth thing that he points to that the Bible often does is it tells us the results of what Jesus has done. Okay, the epistles in the New Testament focus very heavily on because Jesus has died, therefore we have, okay? And so Numbers is especially helpful in showing us our need for a Savior. And what we're going to see is kind of a downward spiral that begins very simply with complaining, okay? And it's going to rupture and roll out and expand, not just into them not entering into the promises that God has made them in the promised land, um, but it's going to roll all the way up up the food chain. And by the time we finish the book, even Moses himself is excluded from the promises, okay? And so it kind of slowly knocks down every category of people, and it begins at the lowest and furthest out, okay? So it's going to culminate in Moses' disobedience later in the book, but it begins tonight uh, on the outskirts. Look at verse 1. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes, And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taborah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. And so it just says generally here that they started to complain about their misfortunes. It's relatively broad. In other words, they looked at life... And the life that they're living is a life of hardship. They're out in the wilderness. They're living literally hand to mouth as God takes care of them day to day. They're in tents and not permanent homes. They haven't broken ground on any new vineyards. They're just a wandering people and life is hard and they begin to complain about these things. Now, for us, very often, we would take mumbling or murmuring or complaining and we list it relatively low on the offense roster in fact some of us just think that that's uh, an aspect of personality we like to chalk it up to being uh, you know a pessimist or even a realist because nobody wants to be pessimistic about themselves we always are optimistic about ourselves so we say oh I'm not a pessimist I'm a realist Um, but Uh, But it's worth recognizing that one of the most serious sins that we see going on in Israel, one that God constantly brings about judgment, is complaining. 
is looking around at life as it is and constantly uh, wishing it was different and stating very negatively, uh, you know, our woe is me's. And the reason is because we can't complain about the life we live without criticizing the author who's writing it. We can't complain about the provision we have without criticizing the one who provides for us. Um, At best, complaining is unbelief. It forgets who God really is and what he really does and what he's really capable of. At worst, it's blasphemous because it denies who God really is and what he really does and what he's capable of. But I want you to notice here um, that the first thing we see is relatively general and it doesn't seem to result in any loss of life. Usually those numbers are recorded for us. What's here happens is a loss of property and it happens on the very fringes of the camp. Okay? And so all, out, of, uh, out of nowhere there's some sort of fire. It's referred to as the fire of the Lord and there are many occasions where that phrase is used where it's most likely talking about lightning. Okay? And so this is just lightning that starts a fire in the camp um, <coughs> and it's put out. This is effectively a shot across the bow. Okay? God is trying to get their attention. He's trying to show them where the boundaries are. And it's worth noticing that this story the story that follows it, and the third story that we'll cover tonight have almost exact parallels back in the book of Exodus. We've been here before. Here, this one just talks about general murmuring, but in uh, in Exodus, the first one has to do with water, complaining that there's nothing to drink. Who's going to take care of us? How can we possibly in this desert have enough to drink? Um, And then both in Exodus and here, the second one has to do with food. There, manna is provided. Here, manna is complained about. Uh, And then finally, it has to do with leadership. Uh, But what's interesting is there's a shift in consequence. What happens in Exodus happens without severe consequence, without result. And here, things are serious. And the reason is because between those two stories is this mountain called Mount Sinai. Between these two stories is the giving of the covenant and Israel's commitment to keep the covenant before God. Okay? And so effectively what we see in Numbers is them doing the same things and now being held accountable for them. Okay? But it begins, like I said, very generally. And what we get in this generality is a pattern. A pattern we'll see play out throughout the book of Numbers, which is that the people sin, usually in the form of mumbling, murmuring, complaining, uh, that God brings judgment, that they cry out and Moses intercedes for them, uh, and then they name the place after the mistake because they don't want to forget it. Okay, And so that's what happens first. And then notice verse 4. It says, Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. The word there that's translated rabble is, uh, this is its only occurrence in the Old Testament. Okay? There is another group using another name that might be who this, quote, rabble is, and they're usually called in the book of Exodus, and even it's sometimes in Numbers, a mixed multitude. You may remember that when Israel came out of Egypt, they didn't come out alone. There were certain Egyptians who had become close friends or even family or had just seen what was going on in the judgment of Egypt and went, we're playing for the wrong team. 
We're interested in what God is offering Israel. And so they went along with Israel. They were not Jewish in their heritage or in their ethnicity, but they saw God for who he really was and they came along. Most likely this word here for rabble is speaking of these people. It may be that it's just a broader derogatory commentary um, on the instigators of this, that they're just lumped into a category. But nonetheless, it says that the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel <coughs> also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. Remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, dried up and look, there's nothing at all but manna to look at. Okay, and so like I said, the parallel in Exodus, they actually have a real hunger problem. They're saying, we're out of the provisions we brought from Egypt. How in the world are we going to survive? Moses, why did you bring us out here to starve to death? And God provides for them by miraculously and daily providing this thing that the Bible calls manna. And so here, they have that, and they've been feeding on that for about a year and a half, and now they're going, oh, Every meal is manna. All we ever eat, what I wouldn't give for a hamburger. And specifically, they start to say, remember how all the fish in Egypt, it was all you can eat? It was totally free. And then they move on to the produce, the melons and the leeks and the garlic. Now, we should recognize up front that this is a relatively skewed perspective. It's a pretty poor memory. Saying that the fish they ate for free is neglecting the fact that they were slaves, okay? They were slaves in Egypt, and so yeah, they had food to eat, but they had no freedom. They belonged to other people, and they were taken advantage of and oppressed and driven, but that part's completely out of mind. They contrast the best parts of a worse situation and compare it to the worst parts of a relatively better situation. One that's full of provision and promises. And the author here wants us to realize that really manna is not that bad of a deal. So he continues in verse 7. Now the manna was like coriander seed and its appearance was like bedellum. And the people went about and gathered it and ground it in handmills, or beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes based, baked with oil. Okay, and so this is no Soylent Green. It's not some sort of tasteless you know, it nourishes you, but it's not enjoyable. It's not even without variety. It says that sometimes they would boil it, sometimes they would fry it, they would bake it in the oven as a cake, uh, they would eat it in different ways. And it says in verse 9, when the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. And so, as we learned in Exodus, this is a daily provision, and now they have, you know, about 500 days of history of God's provision, of taking care of them. Like I said, though, we need to recognize that we are capable of a similar posture. Um, one of the things that ranks the heaviest on our current perspective is our current circumstances. Where we're at now is often a lens for where we've been. And like any lens, it has a tendency to strip the color from realities that really were part of the story. And so maybe you've experienced this and you've been in a difficult place where things were hard, uh, where you feel like God is absent in your life, or your prayers just bounce off of some sort of unseen ceiling and don't seem to make it to heaven, um, or, or 
or your life doesn't line up with the character of the God you thought you believed in. And you're saying, wait, I thought God was good and loving, but right now I'm struggling to believe that. Naturally, one of the next things that happens is we start to doubt the reality of anything contrary to that current belief. We look back over our past and we start to go, maybe God was never there. Maybe all of those things were just coincidental. Maybe this is who God has always been, right? We have to be honest with ourselves, though. It would be just as appropriate in times of difficulty, in times of darkness, to go, yeah, but the sun was out yesterday, right? It would be just as appropriate to say, in this time of difficulty, I can remember who God was yesterday and all the times he came through. If you read the Psalms, you'll see that this is how the psalmist deals with his own depression. In Psalm 42, he says, speaking to himself, he says, why are you so downcast? Why are you so downtrodden? Hope in God. He's preaching to himself. He says, hey, don't be depressed. God's not dead. He's still your provider. And what he does after that is he begins to recount his history his personal spiritual history, the times that God has delivered and saved him. He reminds himself of what God has done and therefore who God is. And so we have to recognize that we're prone to the same thing, the same um, bias that feels true pain and takes that pain and bleeds out all of the positives of a current situation, denies all the evidence of God's goodness. Verse 10, Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. So what began here with these instigators, the rabble who were complaining, spreads. And this is something we have to recognize particularly about verbal sin. Okay? It's contagious. The way that we speak has a tendency to infect others. And so attitudes of unrest, discontentment, uh, uh, patterns of gossip and slander, they have a tendency to perpetuate, to grow. And so what starts here with just the outsiders becomes collectively the entire camp. And now all that the camp is talking about is the good old days of slavery in Egypt. Okay. And so Moses is walking through the camp and he hears this. And it says at the end of verse 10, the anger of the Lord blazed hotly and Moses was displeased. And Moses said to the Lord, now pause here. Back in Exodus, what we see Moses doing is interceding. And he basically, God says, look, I don't know what what we're going to do with your people. And God says, they're not my people, they're your people. Okay, and they have this discussion. The discussion that Moses is about to have is just the opposite. Okay, here Moses has an opportunity to stand in the gap for the people and say, God, please forgive them for their attitude. Uh, But instead, he's overwhelmed as well. And he's not frustrated by the good old days of Egypt. He's not frustrated by the lack of manna. He's frustrated by having to lead such a discontent people. He feels the burden of being responsible for these people. And so notice what he says here in verse 11. Moses said to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all these people on me? Now that's all the people are to him. It's a burden. It's not my people. It's not even your people. It's why have you treated me like this, God? In fact, he interprets what's going on in Israel as evidence of God's displeasure. He goes, clearly you're upset with me. Why else would you treat me so poorly? 
And so he continues here in verse 12. He says, did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers? The next thing here is he says, this is burdensome because it's too much. You've asked me to carry a whole people. Now, you can search Exodus and Numbers, and you won't find any place where God speaks to Moses and says, Moses, you're responsible for these people. In fact, what you find is constant reiterations the other way. Moses, I will be with you. I will provide for them. I will take care of you. But he's so overwhelmed by the gloom of what's going on, he feels like God is asking too much of him, and he's putting burdens on himself that God hasn't put on him at all. And so he continues in verse 13, Where am I to get meat to give to all these people? For they weep before me and say, Give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all the people alone. The burden's too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight that I might not see my wretchedness. He just says, look, if you're going to let this continue, just take my life. I don't want to live as this leader anymore. You want to be gracious to me? Kill me, okay? His attitude is so different than the highs of Moses' life. There are many times, in fact, we'll see one of them tonight where we can point to Moses and say, be like Moses. Be an intercessor. Stand in the gap and pray for people uh, when they sin, even when that sin is against you. There are times where we can learn from the way that God talks to Moses. This is not one of those times. In fact, it's a good reminder that Moses, like every other character in the Old Testament and every character in the New Testament except one, is a sinner just like us that has good days and bad days, that does right things and wrong things. Um, And so here is one of those wrong things. And God uh, is now about to deal with this, and he recognizes a solution to Moses' problem. He graciously goes, okay, you're feeling overburdened, let's talk about that. And so this is what he does in verse 16. The Lord said to Moses, gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. And so he says, okay, find 70 elders. Now, if you go back to the book of Exodus, you'll also find 70 elders, but those ones have particularly a political role. These 70 are appointed particularly in a spiritual role to be leaders like Moses, to help him lead the people spiritually. And so he says, go and gather these 70 men in verse 17. I will come down and talk with you there and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. Now, I think, personally, I think there's a little bit of a chastisement in that statement. Because what he's going to do is not raise up a bunch of new people with their strengths and abilities. He's going to give 70 people the same thing he gave Moses, which is his spirit. Okay? Moses didn't, wasn't asked to do these things in his own strength. God had uniquely gifted Moses, been present with Moses, imparted to him his spirit. And now he says, I've got so much to give, I can do it 70 times over. He doesn't say, give me back the spirit, I'll break it into 71 pieces and de- delineate. He says, no, I'm going to give the self-same spirit to 70 other people. Okay? The recognition here is that the, the larders of God's provision are barely tapped out. That God is totally capable of supplying everything Moses needs. 
And yet God condescends to give him assistance in these 70 men so that he doesn't have to bear it alone. Verse 18, And say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat, for you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? Okay. Now, consecrate is an idea that just means wash yourself and put yourself in a clean state. Okay. Remember that Israel has this, this ritual clean and unclean status. And so for the most part, being unclean just hindered their interaction with the tabernacle. But there were certain occasions where all of Israel had to consecrate themselves because God was going to show up in a particular way. Okay? Um, Mount Sinai is the clearest comparison. Okay? Before God comes to the mountain to speak to Israel, they're to consecrate themselves. And so God is going to show up. And it, <coughs> it <coughs> looks at this point like he's going to show up in bringing meat. Okay? But the other thing that consecration makes us think of is preparation for a sacrifice. Okay? That's how consecration usually played out in Israel. Before you can go and make a sacrifice, you have to be clean. In fact, the sacrifice needs to be clean as well. And so there's this ambiguity that's going on here. We don't really know which way it's going to go. I'll tell you up front, it's not provision. It's judgment. But it's stated here with subtle warning signs where Israel should be prepared for what's coming, but they're so consumed in their own desire. There, there's no gratitude in this, just greed. It's just, all right, tomorrow's meat. You know, they are washing up for supper, not for the presence of God. And so um, he continues, he says, Consecrate yourself. I've heard your weeping and your questions. Who will give us meat? Therefore the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. Verse 19, you shall not just eat one day or two days or five days or ten days or twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we come out of Egypt? Okay. Even here, we hear very clearly what's coming. God says, I'm going to give you what you asked and it's not going to be a good thing. He says, it's, you're going to eat until it's just coming out of your nostrils and it will be loathsome to you. You'll go, I never want to eat meat again. But once again, they're so consumed with excitement and greed and this fanciful world they've created where they basically said, the one thing we need for happiness is meat. Right? denying the reality of the goodness of God, denying the goodness that they already have, effectively cultivating for themselves a new form of heaven. And we can do this so often. Think of how many times in your life you've said, I just have to get this one thing and then everything will be good. Right? And we can use it for justification for terrible behavior. Right? I just, once I get the finish line, then everything will be okay. Uh, we can use it for terrible sacrifices. Uh, sometimes we, uh, we convince ourselves that we have it. And we say, this is the one thing that makes life worth living, and we protect it. And we set boundaries about it, around it, and we focus on it, and we're so afraid, and we stay up late at night worrying about what goes wrong if this one thing disappears. Right? Effectively, we say, this is the meaning of life. And it's not always as basic as what you'd like to eat for dinner. But it, it expresses the same problem that we see here, uh, which is that we basically have created our own promised land. They're no longer looking forward to the promises of God. They just want a barbecue. 
That's it. That's what makes life worth living. And so they can't even see the warning signs uh, of these things going on. Verse 21, but Moses said, the people among whom I number 600,000 on foot, and you've said, I will give them meat that they may eat a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you will see whether my word will come true for you or not. Now here's something that I firmly believe. There are many occasions where people ask for things that are totally okay, but the motive is what God is dealing with. And this seems to be one of those occasions, right? Moses, the only reason he didn't ask that God would give me just faithfully and just say, hey, could you bring us some meat? The only reason he doesn't ask, the only reason he's not involved is apparently he doesn't actually think it's something that God can do. That's why this is so burdensome, because he's got 600,000 soldiers, plus all of their families, children, and Levites, two million people, and he just says, how in the world are we going to feed all these people with meat? Okay? Despite the fact that they've been fed daily, miraculously, by manna all this time, and God just tries to correct his theology. He says, it's not, it's not you know, that my arm is shortened. It's not that I'm not strong enough or great enough to provide meat. The problem here is not, okay, well, logistically, it's really difficult, but I can probably figure it out, right? The attitude is where things are wrong. And so he, he says here, look, I'm fully capable of taking care of this, and everyone is going to see that that's the case. What's so striking about this particular judgment is that in God doing it is also a reminder of who he is, and not merely just his holiness and his good, goodness, but his power, their complaint about God's capabilities uh, is primarily offensive uh, because this is not something that's too big for God. It's the same way. If your life is not worth living without your job or without your health, if your life isn't valuable without whatever this thing is that you've put up on the shelf and made the altar of your life, effectively, you're forgetting how good God is at at taking care of you when things go sideways. Okay. The last time Israel was crying out and weeping, God heard them. They were slaves in Egypt. They were being totally oppressed. They were completely overgunned, outpowered, outstatus with no deliverer, and God heard them, and he was capable of taking care of it. And they need a reminder. But sometimes the reminders that God gives are difficult. C.S. Lewis famously said that God whispers to us in our pleasure and shouts to us in our pain. The people are deaf to God's character, and so he gives them a profound reminder, and it's a reminder of judgment, but it's still a reminder of him, his capabilities, yes, his holiness, but also his power. So, verse 24, Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 men of the elders, the people, and placed them around the tent. Now, are you noticing how the stories are interwoven here? It starts with a need for meat, and then it's the elders, and then it's provision of meat, and now it's back to the elders again. There's a reason for that, which we'll talk about in just a second. Okay, so um, he, he gathers up the elders, verse 24, the 70 men, the elders, the people, placed them around the tent, and the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put him on the 70 elders, and as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied but they did not continue doing it. In other words, this didn't 
this thing that happens that's labeled prophecy here wasn't something that they could just call up and do on any occasion. It wasn't part of the rest of their lives. It's just a sign for what's happening right there. We see a similar thing in the days of Saul, okay, where there's all of these prophets experiencing the same outpouring of the Spirit, and as Saul gets intermingled in them, he too begins to prophesy. Okay? It's ecstatic in nature. It's, it's overwhelming. It's something happens. If, if we were to try and compare it to something in the New Testament, it's similar to the gift of tongues and how it seems to operate. In fact, as we read this, can you see comparisons between this and the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? When the church is all waiting in a prayer meeting and it's, the Spirit descends kind of like a wind and kind of like a fire and they all begin to speak in languages they did not know of the good things God had done. It's this happening, okay? And here it happens with these 70 men earmarking them for the ministry that God has called them to publicly, portraying that this is the case. Okay, verse 27. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Uh, I'm sorry, we should double back a little bit. Verse 26. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them, and they were among those registered, but they'd not gone out to the tent, so they prophesied in the camp. And so it doesn't just happen in the gathering, but there's two absentees of these 70 elders. For some, some reason, they're out in the camp. And so some young man comes to Moses and he says, Eldad and Medad in the camp, they're prophesying as well. In verse uh, 28, Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. And so recognize what Joshua is doing here, okay? He's taken this role as primarily Moses' assistant. And so he hears that these, there's these two men in the camp doing this, and he wants it to stop because he sees it as a threat to Moses' leadership. Okay. Where it's happening with the other 68, Moses is there, he's present, his authority isn't in question, right? It's in fact through his prayers that this is happening, but there's these two outliers, and he sees it as dangerous. It's similar to something that happens with Jesus' disciples. You see, not only do we see Jesus in the Gospels doing miraculous things, exorcisms and healing the sick and the lame and the blind, uh, even raising the dead, but we also find that he imparts the same power to his disciples and even sends them out, and they're doing these same things. And so one point, the disciples come to Jesus, and they said, Rabbi, we saw a man casting out a demon in your name the other day. We told him to stop. Now, recognize why they're telling Jesus this, okay? They don't ask. They tell. They want a commendation. They want a good job. But that's not what they get from Jesus. Jesus goes, Anyone who's not against us is for us. He says, why would you create such division? Why would you divide between, why make a division between us and them? In the same way, Joshua here is misguided and Moses' response is both surprising and refreshing. Notice what he says in verse 29. Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would put his spirit on all of them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to camp. He just says, if I had my way, everybody would experience this. Everybody would know God as intimately as I do. Everybody would be empowered in the miraculous way that I am. 
In fact, this longing that Moses has is something that the prophet Joel prophesies is going to be something that God does. And so in Joel chapter 2, it says, It's coming in the latter days that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And not just the men and the young men, but the women and even the maidservants will prophesy. Okay. Moses actually has the heart of God here. He recognizes what's going on. He doesn't see his leadership threatened at all because he knows he's supposed to lead these people towards something. And so he may be a few steps ahead, but his goal is to get everybody there with him. And so he's not threatened by by this. He has this longing here. He wishes that it would be the case for all of them. And I would add here that Joshua gets a very helpful lesson, lesson in leadership. We don't know this yet, But by the time Moses dies, it's Joshua who's going to take his place as the new leader of Israel. And so this is recorded here as part of Joshua's training. It's it's on-the-job training, learning what leadership is and what leadership does. And leadership is not threatened by the gifts and the abilities and even the callings of other people. And I, like all of us, would like to have Moses' heart. But like the disciples, like Joshua here... Sometimes I find myself having the dumbest thoughts where I'm moping, where it's like, I wish that person wasn't going to that church. I wish they were coming to my church. It's such a weird idea. But I find it in my heart just like I find it in Joshua's, just like I find it in the disciples, uh, like I imagine it's in many of our lives where sometimes we want to be exclusively the source of goodness in people's lives, their connection with the Lord. But the right and proper heart to have the one that comes from God himself is that his spirit would be diffused uh, that would be experienced would be known that um, that it, like it says in the uh, in the minor prophets that in the latter days no one will teach another person because they will all know the Lord they won't have to say anymore here's what Jesus is like because they can just go Jesus let's go have a conversation it's a different thing so here the spirit falls upon these men and they begin to prophesy and then verse 31 a wind from the lord sprang up and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp now here's what you're missing because you're reading the bible with me in english tonight the word for spirit and the word for wind in the hebrew uh in the hebrew language is the same it's ruach it's also translated as breath Okay, so in Genesis, when it says that the spirit was moving over the face of the waters in Genesis chapter 1, that's Ruach. When it says that God breathed into Adam, that's Ruach. When it says a wind moved away the rain clouds and the sun came up and the flood started to recede, that's all the same word. Okay? And here we find it collectively in this interwoven story about two things. And so here we see the Ruach coming on these men and enabling them to lead the people of Israel and simultaneously this Ruach, this wind, bringing about the quail of Israel. We should be noticing that. And since we're not first language readers, we have a tendency to miss it. And so verse 31, a wind from the Lord sprang up and it brought a quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on the side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp and about two cubits above the ground. Now it says here that it fell beside the camp. The word there is around, okay? And so the idea here is not that the quail fall right on the tents of Israel, but directly around Israel. This is maybe more miraculous than just a windstorm blowing a bunch of quail off course, okay? 
In fact, it's significant for another reason. Because we're told earlier in the book of Exodus that the manna falls directly on the camp. Okay? And so where the manna falls is on the camp, where the quail falls is outside the camp. Even that probably has a built-in warning sign where they should be going, okay, not only are we seeing God's miraculous provision, but this isn't as it always is. This is something different. This is something unique. Um, but it's so many quail that they can walk in any distance for a day. Okay, this is a massive amount of quail. Now, interestingly enough, we have some uh, 20th century and late 18th century explorers that testify to certain tribes living in this general area who knew about the migratory practices of quail and would feast seasonally on the quail as they landed. Okay? And so there's a natural aspect to this, but it doesn't change the fact that not only is there a wind, but the number of quail that we're talking about um, you know, is enough to feed two million people. It's, it's a substantially large uh, gaggle of birds. Um, and so it says in verse, uh, verse 31 there that they uh, were around the camp about two cubits above the ground. That's either a measurement of how they were flying. Two cubits is about three feet. So they're flying really low and they're easy to catch. Uh, or it's a measurement of when they start to pile them up how big the piles of birds are. It's hard to tell. Um, the text is a little ambiguous, but either way, it continues, verse 32, the people rose all that day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. Those who gathered the least gathered 10 homers. That's a lot. That's way more than anyone can eat, okay? And so notice here, once again, the greed we see in Israel. They see this as kind of a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and all the way late into the night, and then they go to bed toasted and get up the next morning, and then all the next day, they're, all they're devoting themselves to is gathering births. Okay? If you go back and you read the story of the manna, they only were to gather enough for the day, because it wouldn't last for the next day. Okay? And God's been constantly teaching them this lesson of daily provision, the fact that God will take care of today's needs today and tomorrow's needs tomorrow. The way we see Israel behaving here, uh, you know, is like Black Friday, right? This is, this is doorbuster reality, and they have to get as much as they can for themselves because this isn't going to be around forever. Um, once again, we're seeing more of their attitude in this. And so look at how it finishes here. They spent all this time gathering in them, verse 33, while the meat was yet between their teeth. Before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore, the name of that place was called Kibaroth Havitah, because they buried people who, uh, who had the craving. From Kibaroth Havitah, the people journeyed to Hazaroth, and they remained at Hazaroth. And so this thing that they thought was the meaning of life turns to death in their mouth, and this great plague breaks out. Um, and because of it, many die and are buried right there. Now, of course, it's extreme, but we have to balance this out with God's patience. Okay? Oftentimes when we read the Bible, we read a particular story like a one-off. But we have to remember that this is, this is uh, days and weeks and months. And if you never do anything, if you never bring about consequence, then you're not patient. You just don't actually care. And so God is patient, but he's not eternally patient because patience is not eternal. 
And so he's long-suffering and more so than us, and consequences do come. And even here, the consequences is because we're talking about something that's high stakes. When Paul in, second, or in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is talking about these things as examples, he's recognizing that the life that we live is high stakes. And so God is faithful to discipline his children. That's what it says in the book of Hebrews. Because there's things on the line. There's lessons he wants to teach us. Uh, and the stakes are high. We're talking about heaven and hell, um, life and death. And so verse 1 of chapter 12. Here we saw, what did we see? We saw generic, then we saw the rabble, we saw it spreading to the people, and now it moves into the leaders of Israel. Okay? Now it moves out of the normal, you know, Joe Israel and into the characters that we actually know by name. And so look at verse 1. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, freed married a Cushite woman. Now most likely here, the woman that Moses married is Zephorah. Okay. She's referred to in the book of Exodus as a Midianite. Um, the way that tribes were so moving around there, and especially the way that Cush is used in the Bible, it's meaning clearly. You can delete this story and pay attention to just the prophets, uh, the book of Kings and the book of Genesis. Its meaning clearly migrates over time. Okay? And so we know during the days of the prophets, when they say Cush, they mean Ethiopia. It's very unlikely that Moses has taken a wife from Ethiopia. That's a pretty good distance from where they are in the wilderness, okay? Um, but because of this interaction with tribes, the most likely thing is this Cushite woman is the Midianite. It's Sipporah. It's his wife. And it just reminds us here um, that he had taken this woman. And they bring this complaint. And up front, their complaint looks like it's an uh, ethnic complaint. In fact... You can almost see why it would make sense in this context. Where did these things begin, these problems that just laid out, this huge plague that just ripped through Israel? It began with the rabble. And here's Moses, and he has a rabble wife, right? He has a foreigner wife. He's not, his wife isn't Jewish. She's not one of us. But as we're going to see, this is really just a smokescreen. Clearly what happens in this chapter has been brewing for a while, and this just presents the opportunity. And they go, aha. Here's where we can bring the complaint. But notice the complaint that follows on its heels in verse 2. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? Now, those are true statements, right? Aaron is the high priest. He's Moses' older brother who was chosen by God. In fact, in, back in the book of Exodus, before he becomes the high priest, he's Moses' spokesperson. Right? He's a primary character that God has been using. And Miriam, Miriam is the same way. Not only without Miriam is there no Moses, remember, she's the older sister that interferes so that he gets raised in the palace and not put to death. But she's also the one um, who's labeled a prophetess. She's the one who leads all of these women in singing. Um, she has a significant role that she plays in Israel, but for both of them it's not enough. They go, look, clearly Moses is at the top of the food chain and that's not fair. I'm, I mean, he's just our younger brother. This is just Moses we're talking about. Why does he have all the authority? And they say, look, we hear from God as well. Why is Moses calling all the shots? You see, Moses' wife is really just a smokescreen for the real issue. This is a power grab. And so look at how it plays out. The question they ask is, has he not spoken to us or through us, depending on the text also? 
And Moses isn't the one, is the one they're talking to here, but he's not the only one who hears it. It adds at the end of verse 2 here, and the Lord heard it. Now, verse 3, now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Okay, this is narrator commentary for us. Okay, and what it says is not just that Moses was very meek, but that he won the meek Olympics, right? He's meeker than anyone who ever lived or would ever live. It's a, it's a very strong statement of his meekness here. And it's very interesting to read because it appears, and the rabbis and tradition tells us that Moses authored the book of Numbers. Now, if you don't get the irony of that, let me bring it out into the light. If this is Moses writing that he's the meekest man who ever lived in the entire earth, it kind of loses its weight. You're like, wait a minute, how humble can you be if you just told us how humble you are, right? That's the problem of humility. When it's spoken, it disappears, okay? Um, Most likely, this is a comment that's added by someone else, okay? We know that there's some editing that goes on in the book of Numbers. In fact, the end of the book of Deuteronomy, another book that we attribute to, uh, to Moses, records the death and the aftermath of the death of Moses. So either he penned it and then died, you know, prophetically, or there's some editorial material going on here. Now, it is worth pointing out, just because I think it's a good reminder, knowing who you are does not deny humility, Knowing your strength, your gifts, your positions, that's not where humility lies, of denying those things, okay? You don't have to take who you really are and hide it because you're so humble. It's how you view those things that makes you humble. If you get called into a court uh, as an expert witness and they say, what are your credentials to be here? And you really are the number one expert in your field, saying so is not necessarily a statement of pride. It's just a statement of fact. But if you puff up your chest and you say it in a way that everybody knows that makes you better than everyone else, that's where we start to transition. But even so, most likely this is an added comment so we would understand the significance of this statement. When it says here that it's, the, the word here used for meek means to bow down, to bend over. The idea here is that uh, of meekness throughout the Bible is that you're not going to fight for yourself. In fact, this is what makes Jesus' statement about the meek so powerful. Jesus famously in the Sermon on the Mount says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Okay? The meek are the ones who don't fight for their own battles. And he says the meek get everything. The ones who refuse to stamp a piece of territory and say, This is mine, come and get it, uh, but I'm not going to let it go. He says those are the ones who get everything. Okay? That's what makes that so profound. And it tells us this because... Moses' reaction to these things is not to fight. Notice what he does. So it says here that he was so meek, and then verse 4, suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. What we see in this story from Moses is silence. He doesn't defend himself. This is something we see in the Psalms as well. Now remember that the Psalms were written by David. And David, I think, is a great example of meekness. One place we can see David's meekness is when he's on the run from King Saul. And at this point in the story, David has been anointed as the new king, and Saul has publicly been rejected as king. Okay? And so Saul is chasing David as a threat to his throne, and David has an opportunity that looks like it's custom-built to set things right. He's hiding in a cave. 
And Saul comes in to relieve himself in the cave. A relatively vulnerable state, right? You're in the dark. You're using the restroom. You don't know that the man you're hunting and all of his soldiers are hiding in that same cave, okay? And so David sneaks up and he cuts a piece off of Saul's garment. Instead of taking his life, he just takes a piece of garment and then when Saul goes back down the hill, he calls to him from a distance and he shows him the garment. And it kind of wakes Saul up and he's like, wait, you had the opportunity and you didn't take it. And David says, I will not slay the Lord's anointed. Effectively, what he's saying there is, God said he's going to make me king. That's his business. I'm not going to make me king. Later on, when his son Absalom tries to take over the throne and just sets up business in, in, um, in the castle vying for leadership, David doesn't fight him. He leaves. And effectively, with those actions, he's saying, God gave me this throne. If he wants to keep it for me, he can do it. But in the Psalms, we see what's going on behind the scenes. And what we discover is that David is, a, is in total recognition of the fact that his life is filled with enemies and that he needs justice to be done. He's, he, it's not that he doesn't care about the throne or about his life. It's not that he doesn't care about these things. He cares very deeply, but he doesn't fight his own battles. And so the Psalms are full of places where it's saying, vindicate me, O God. Validate me before my enemies. Speak truth against the lies of those who slander me. But the only way that God can do that is if we don't try and beat him to the punch. Moses here gives God the opportunity to defend him because he doesn't defend himself. I think that's significant. And so God speaks here, and it's interesting, the language it uses here is that God speaks directly to Moses and Aaron and Miriam, which is exactly what they had said. God speaks to us too, and he goes, okay, well, let's talk, okay? And this is what happens next, verse 5. The Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. So he separates these two to him. And he said, hear my words, okay? You're the one who says that I speak to you as well as to Moses. Listen up, and this is what he says. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. And this is something that you can see even as you read in the prophets, like the ones who bear the labels because their books that are written are called the prophets. Okay? Um, most of the time it says that the word of the Lord was shown to them. The language it uses for the revelation that the prophets receive is a visual language. And here it says, look, the primary way I speak to people is visions and dreams. But, he continues, verse 7, not so with my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth. Okay, sometimes that's translated face to face. Mouth to mouth is the literal. It's an incredibly intimate form of communication, right? It's two people in conference, eye to eye, talking quietly. And he continues here and he says, and not in riddles, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? What he says here is, look, I speak to many people. And I have plans to speak to many more. 
There will be many prophets, and they will see, and there will be imagery, and they'll have to go, wait, what do you mean? And there will be interpretation and all of these things, but it's different with Moses. Moses I speak to directly. Moses I speak to clearly. And when it says he's seen my form, the idea here is I speak to him in person. Remember there's this happening in the book of Exodus where he says to God, God, I just, I just want to see your glory. And he says, no one can see my glory and live, but I'll hide you in the cleft of a rock, I'll cover it with my hand, and I'll pass by, and you'll see my afterglow. That's a unique experience that only Moses has in the Old Testament. And so he calls these things out, and he says, look, we're not talking about the same level here. Moses has been faithful in all my house. He is my servant. And so he defends Moses here. Now, this is especially important because it sets up a really, uh, a really interesting paradigm for something that's said in the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses is giving his final address to the people before he dies. And he says this. He says, God will raise up a prophet like me for you. And the rabbis reading that recognized that this wasn't just any old prophet, not just some Elijah or Isaiah, not just some Jeremiah. It was going to be something unique. In fact, it became one of the titles for the Messiah, the prophet. In fact, if you read the Gospels very closely, and Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Well, some say you're the prophet. They're talking about the Deuteronomy 18 prophet the one that was unique because he was going to be a prophet like Moses. Here is where we find out what that difference is. There was one coming who God would speak with face to face, directly and clearly. That's Jesus, okay? The prophet that was to come, the only one who exceeded Moses in intimacy and full and true connection and revelation and speaking to God face to face was Jesus because he had come from God. From, as John says, the very bosom of the Father, very intimate word, right? That means you couldn't be any closer to God than Jesus was because he was both uh, separate from God the Father and God himself, right? As John's prologue tells us in his gospel. And so he sets a distinction here and he says it was foolish for you to compare yourself to Moses. This is a different thing that I'm doing. In verse nine, the anger of the Lord was kindled against them and he departed And when the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turns towards Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And so what happens is this cloud goes up, and they look over at Miriam, and her skin is covered with something that looks like psoriasis or eczema. It's flaky like snow. The idea isn't here that she's white like snow, which is the comparison we usually make. It's flaky like snow, okay? Her skin is clearly diseased. Now, why just Miriam? It would be easy to say, well, maybe she was the instigator uh, just from the text, but we, we have a reason to believe that's the case. In the very first verses of the chapter here when it says that Miriam and Aaron spoke against, the verb there is in the female gender. Aaron's there, but verbally the spokesperson, the one who's talking is Miriam. She's the leader. And so this judgment just falls on her. Notice what happens next, verse 11. And Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and sinned. Who is Aaron? He's the high priest. Once a year, he does something that no one else does. He intercedes for the whole people of Israel in the Holy of Holies, right? 
God forgive them for their sins. Here, he hasn't that opportunity. He turns to Moses and says, Moses, pray for us. Okay. In this affirmation of Moses' leadership is a recognition of Miriam and Aaron's need for Moses. Okay. And so uh, he says, Oh my Lord, do not punish us because we've done foolishly and sinned. Verse 12, let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord. Here's Moses' meekness again. What doesn't he say? Serves you right. Or I think I'll leave her that way for a while. He cries to the Lord. He prays for her. He intercedes for her. Oh God, please heal her. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp for seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. Now, for the most baseline version of leprosy, isolation for seven days was the thing. Okay? And so he says, this is going to be healed. What I did now is temporary. It's just to remind, uh, remind her of the fact that I'm in charge, that I not only chose Moses, but I am God who chose Moses. Um, but she's going to be outside of the camp and she's going to have to serve this sentence of uncleanness and then it'll be totally taken care of. Okay? She's not above the ritual law. Here, she had come and said, look, I'm just as holy as Moses is. And she's struck with this uncleanness and kept out outside the camp. And notice what it says here in verse 15. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. I want you to notice that that verse tells us two significant things. Okay, the first is, Miriam is so important to the camp, they're not just going to leave her behind. The role she has and the authority that comes with it is significant and it is real. She is tremendously valuable to the camp. She's a prophet, a prophetess. She leads the women who sing worship to the Lord. She has an important role to play, and so they're not just going to leave without her or say, you'll catch up with us eventually, right? They wait. But on the other hand, we could look at it and say they wait because of her sin. Here they are on this travel to the promised land, and all of Israel is delayed a week because of the actions of a particular leader, okay? We see a similar thing in the New Testament. If you want to chronologically read the Gospels, the earliest event in the Gospels that deals with actually the days of the Gospels, so not the genealogies, um, is the angel who reveals himself to John to tell him about the birth, or sorry, reveals himself to Zechariah to tell him about the birth of his son John. That's the first thing that happens. And what you may not know when you read your Bible is when you move from Malachi to Matthew, When you cross that threshold from Old Testament to New Testament, between that is 400 years where nothing happens, where God is totally silent, where no prophet is operating, where there are no visions or revelations from God, where they're just waiting. They have the words of the minor prophets, the post-exilic ones, and they're just waiting for God to show up, and life just kind of goes on. Interestingly enough, it's during those 400 years um, that, that the Maccabees, first and second Maccabees happens, the story that leads to Hanukkah. Okay? But in terms of the scriptures, nothing for 400 years. So recognize the significance then of when this angel reveals himself to Zechariah as he's ministering in the temple as a priest and says, it's happening. The forerunner that Malachi talked about, he's coming, he's going to be your son. And in his unbelief, Zechariah goes, I'm way too old for this gig. And the angel says, look, because of your unbelief, you're not going to talk until the day that baby is born and named. 
and he's struck silent. This 400 years of silence is extended another nine months because of Zechariah's unbelief. Nobody gets to hear about what God's about to do because the one who was given the role of telling everybody about it didn't believe. And some would look at the verse we just read, verse 15 here, and they would go one way or the other. They'd go, this verse shows the significance of Miriam's authority and importance. And the others would say, this shows the horror of her sin and how it impacts other people. We have to recognize those always go together. Okay? Leadership is responsibility, and with responsibility comes consequences on the people we lead. Okay? It is both a tremendous honor and, uh, and one that's not without consequence. As I've illustrated before, if our president decides to go to war, we as a nation are at war. That's a huge decision, one that I'm constantly grateful I don't have to make, okay? Because it impacts so many other people's lives. I don't even like to tell my family where we're going to have lunch, you know? We recognize this sense of responsibility, but with responsibility becomes, or comes responsibility comes consequence so we see that playing out here and so they set out again after seven days Miriam's restored verse 16 after that the people set out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran now I want you to notice here that we've been progressive right there's this general description there's this shot across the bow then there's the complaining about meat and it spreads to the whole camp and there's this happening and now there's this leadership uprising against Moses at the upper echelons of Israel's authority, uh, and there's this huge consequence of it. And now we get to where we're going, okay? All of these stories are just foreshadowing what's about to happen. There's a famous saying about writing a play or a novel, that if there's going to be a murder in Act 2, there better be a gun in Act 1. We've met the gun, okay? We've seen what Israel is capable of in their rebellion. Now we're going to find out where it hits its culmination. Okay? This has been bubbling over and boiling, and as, as God has been warning them right, with judgment, now we come to one where it's really kind of the final test. Every other one has been a quiz that they could make up. But now they're at their final test. They come to the border of the promised land. Don't forget the significance of this moment in Israel's history. Promises made to Abraham are about to be fulfilled that have never been fulfilled. The entire reason for the exodus is about to come to its conclusion. Their whole duration in the wilderness is about to transition to the permanent life in a land flowing with milk and honey. This is a big deal, okay? And as we should always do when we read, we should try and read this for the first time. You probably know what happens. But try and read it as if this was the first time you were hearing the story. Read Bram Stoker's Dracula and forget that you know that Dracula is a vampire, okay? Read it for the first time. So notice what it says in verse 1 of 13. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send men, everyone a chief among them. Once again, it's the chiefs. Chiefs appointed as elders. Chiefs to help with the survey. Chiefs here to spy out the land. Why? So every tribe has personal representatives of respected authority who are eyewitnesses of, of, of the land, okay? This is not, a, you know, a Lamar Burton. Is that right? Is that the guy I want? LeVar, yeah. Uh, it, this is not a you don't have to take my word for it moment. Uh, you know, it's, 
he wants everyone to go in the land, representatives from every tribe, and see for themselves what God's about to give them. And notice up front, he, po- he couches it this way, verse 2. Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. Okay, This is not a normal reconnaissance tour. It's not just, let's go in and see if we can really take this. God wants to give them a preview of what's coming. He wants them to know that the fighting is worth it. Okay, So, verse 4. And these were the names from the tribe of Reuben, Shammah, the son of Zachariah, from the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, the son of Hori, from the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephnah, from the tribe of Issachar, Egal, the son of Joseph, from the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, the son of Nun, from the tribe of Benjamin, Patil, the son of Raphu, from the tribe of Zebulon, Gedil, the son of Sodi, from the tribe of Joseph, that is, from the tribe of Manasseh, Gadi, the son of Susi. From the tribe of Dan, Emilio, the son of Gamaliel. From the tribe of Asher, Sether, the son of Michael. From the tribe of Naphtali, Nabdi, the son of Vospi. From the tribe of Gad, Gul, the son of Machi. These were the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. Now, we had mentioned a few weeks ago that one of the things that points to the antiquity of this book that it wasn't written by priests later in Israel's history to enforce their power, but was actually written before Israel was a nation, is this reality right here. It's the fact that none of Israel in the days of Exodus knew God as Jehovah. Okay, And so we see that in Joshua's name because his given name as a child born in Egypt is Hosea, which is a way of saying God is my salvation, but it's changed to Joshua. Okay, Yahweh, Jehovah, Jehovah is my salvation. The name change is a recognition of now we know God by name. Okay, and so it just adds this note um, because they keep really rigid records. All of these leaders have their birth names. Oh, by the way, this one you know is Joshua. Okay, verse 17, Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and he said to them, here's their instructions, go up into the Negev, go into the hill country and see what the land is, whether the people who dwell there are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds. In other words, are they walled cities or just villages? Verse 20, whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not, be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season for the first ripe grapes. Okay, So it's a good time to bring fruit back because you're really going to get a sampling of what's going on. Verse 21, so they went and they spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehob near Labo Hamath. They went into the Negev and came to Hebron. Ahiman, Sheshai, Talmai, the descendants of Anak were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt, just a historical note. Verse 23, they came to the valley of Eskel and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes. (coughs) Eskel means bunch, so the valley is named for vineyards. And so they cut down a single cluster of grapes and they carried on a pole between two of them. What does that say about the grapes? This is a huge cluster. Okay, this is not something you put in your picnic basket. The grapes are growing so well there that they have to carry it between two men, just a single bunch. They also brought some pomegranates and figs and that place was called the Valley of Eskel because the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. Okay? And so it gives us in advance the name of this valley. They name it for the significance of this, but it, clearly it was a valley full of vineyards. 
So they come back and they give their report. Verse 25, at the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. So this is a long trip. Twelve people go out in different directions, probably in teams of two, and they cover the land over the course of a little more than a month, and then they return. Verse 26, they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land, and they told them, we came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit, pointing to this massive pile of grapes. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. We've dug up some Hittite cities. The walls were about 35 to 50 feet high and 15 feet wide. Okay? So significant fortification in the land of Israel in these days. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Anak is a Hebrew word that means neck. Uh, most likely here, the reason these ones are significant, as we'll see in just a second, is they're huge. This is a race of relatively large, strong warriors. Verse 29, the Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the Jordan. Okay, so notice what they say. They say, the land is amazing, but the inhabitants are strong and well fortified. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, look, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we're well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they're stronger than we are. One spy, possibly two, because we'll see Joshua's involved in a minute, gives a minority report, a different view. Everyone else gives the same facts, okay? The land is good. The enemies are strong. Caleb says, conclusion, we can do it. Let's do it now. Conclusion they come to? No way. We're, we're not able to do it. What's the difference in their equation? Where's the math playing out differently? We see here in verse 32. So they brought the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants. All the people we saw in it are of great height. Even here, do you see the exaggeration? First it was a land flowing of milk and honey, and now it's inhabitable. It'll eat us alive. First it was, there are the people of Anak. Now everyone we saw is massive. In fact, notice what they say here. He says, verse 33, and we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak who come from the Nephilim. Goes back to the story of these supermen in the book of Genesis and uses that label for comparison, okay? Whether it's rightly deserved or not. Uh, And then he said, and we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers and so we seemed to them. He says, look, we're just bugs. They're just going to squash us. Probably the idea of grasshoppers here is like when we would call somebody a shrimp, right? It's supposed to be diminutive in nature. And so they have these two reports. We'll see what the difference is in just a second, but look at the response of the people of Israel. Verse 1 of chapter 14, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or would that we have died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? He said we would rather have died as slaves, or maybe he should have killed us in the wilderness. Now he's just brought us to be killed by the soldiers of this foreign land. Then notice what they complain next. Our wives and our little ones will become a prey 
Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Okay, so they say, look, this is irresponsible as parents to try and take this land. This is just a life of slavery and death and destruction for our children. Moses clearly doesn't care about us. Aaron doesn't care about us. Let's appoint a leader and we'll just go back the way we came. Okay, we'll just go back to Egypt and, I don't know, wave a white flag and say, hey, we were wrong. Will you take us as slaves again? I mean, this isn't a really well thought out plan, but it's clearly an act of mutiny and rebellion. Verse 5, then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. Okay, this is a very extreme response. Most of the time in the Bible, it's a positive response. It's what you do when you encounter the living God, right? You fall on your face. You're overwhelmed by his holiness. Here, it's probably an act of fear. They recognize the significance of what's happening, and they're just overwhelmed. Maybe you've experienced this in your life. I can remember an occasion um, where the shock of what was going on and its difficulty uh, put me on my knees. There were two of them, okay? One was when my son Logan was being born and there was some complications. And so we went from uh, putting an IV in my wife's arm to her being rushed down to the OR because they couldn't find a heartbeat and I was left alone in a hospital room, not knowing if my wife or my child were gonna be okay. That put me on my knees. Okay. The other occasion was when I was a little kid and I'd had a really bad fight with my dad. The only time I've ever done damage to a piece of property, it was that type of an argument. And I went for a walk to cool down and I came back and I came into the living room and my whole family's crying and my dad's there with his bags packed. And it was the same thing. I was just overwhelmed by the shock of it. I fell to my knees. That's what's going on here. Okay, They're like, do they have any idea what this means, the significance of this? They're overwhelmed. And so verse 6, Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephna, remember these two um, spies who gave a different report, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes, which is a Semitic sign of... Um, um, just a second. Of mourning. Significant mourning. So they tear their clothes visibly to see, show how overwhelmed they are, and they save the congregation of the people of Israel. The land which we pass through to spy out is exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. There we get the difference in the equation. The people say, the land is good, but the people are strong. We can't do it. And Caleb says, the land is good, the people are strong, but we have God on our side and we have his favor. He said he'll give us the land. And then they continue, verse uh, nine, only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are bred for us. Some famous preacher once said, fear God and you need not fear anyone else. That's what Joshua's trying to get across here. They're either going to have the people of the land as their enemy or God as their enemy. And he just says, choose wisely. He continues here. He says, their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. He says, this isn't going to be a battle of chariots and swords and uh, you know, stronger numbers and better things. He says, the Lord is on our side and what would keep them safe is completely removed. Verse 10, then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. The nation of Israel is out of control. And even Joshua and Caleb, who are just trying to present another option, they're about to be slaughtered for it. Okay? And this is where God interferes. But the glory 
of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel, and the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me, and how long will they not believe me, in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? Remember to read this in the story, in the context, in the narrative. This is not day one of being God's people. Right? This is a year and a half of God's provision. They've seen the Red Sea part. They've seen all of the plagues. They've seen all of these things. And so here we see, once again, God's patience. And we also see it running out. How long will I put up with these people? How long will this go on? And he says in verse 12, I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. I will make of you, Moses, a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, this is Moses on his A-game again here. This is Moses as the great intercessor. This is Moses standing in. He doesn't agree. He doesn't even take the temptation. Instead, he expresses the, the heart that God has for the people. And he says to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it, that you brought up these people with might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of the land they've heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, Lord, is seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill these people as one man, then the nations who've heard your fame will say it's because of the Lord he was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them, that he who has killed them in the wilderness. Notice what he says here. He says, God, this is about your reputation. As terrible as these people may be, if, you're, if you don't bring them into the land, everybody's going to go, yeah, the God of Israel, he's weak. He couldn't do it. They died. Okay. So the first thing we see in his intercession is he, he focuses on God's plan, God's character, God's glory, and then he also focuses on God's word, verse 17. Now please let the power of the Lord be as great as you have promised, saying, and he co- quotes God to himself here. The Lord is slow to anger, this is from um, Exodus, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the father on the children to the third and fourth generation. He quotes here, he says, this is how you revealed yourself to me. This is who you said you are. And he quotes it verbatim and he says, verse 9, please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you've forgiven this people from Egypt until now. He says, you're right, these people haven't changed. They've been sinners from the beginning, but you haven't changed either. You're a forgiving and a gracious God. And so notice what he doesn't do here. He doesn't intercede by belittling the sin. He doesn't say, God, this isn't really that big of a deal. Show, you know, show, just, just don't treat it like a big deal. He also doesn't try and balance out the scales and say, hey, look, I know what they did is awful, but at heart, they're really a good people. He focuses on God's glory, he focuses on God's word and his promises, and he focuses on God's character. He says, this is about you. Please, because you are so forgiving, forgive them. Because you are so compassionate, have compassion. Demonstrate your mercy and fulfill your promises as you've said you will do. And he says, forgive them. Look at verse 20. The Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. I love that verse. He says, you asked me to forgive them, and I have. Notice what's not on the table here. There's no bargaining. There's no timeout period. The forgiveness is asked for, and it's granted. Now, clearly, as we'll see in a minute, that doesn't remove consequences. But like I told you, there's a lot at stake here, and it's not just the promised land. 
I think one of the things we get wrong in reading the Old Testament is we read the promised land like it's the Old Testament's version of heaven. This is just my conviction. The Bible's not clear on these things. I think many of the people who are going to perish in the wilderness over the next 40 years of the book will meet in heaven. There are consequences, but there is also forgiveness. It says in the book of Galatians that we shouldn't be deceived deceived because God is not mocked, and what we sow we will also reap. And if we sow corruption, we will reap death. And if we sow to the Spirit, we will reap life. God's forgiveness doesn't always remove his discipline or his consequences or just the natural results of things, okay? Um but his forgiveness is still valuable and powerful because there's more to life than just these things. And so he forgives them, but, he continues, verse 21, truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. He says, you want to talk about my glory? My plan hasn't changed. As I live, all the world will know who I really am. And because of that, he grounds it in his glory, verse 22, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have yet put me to the test these ten times and not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers and none of those who despise me will see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and followed me faithfully, I will bring into the land which he went and his descendants shall possess it. And we should read that as including Joshua. Remember, he's the one who leads the new generation Verse 25, now since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. He says, that's done. My sentence is given. That's all there's going to be. No one is going to see it. Turn around and head back. You can't stay here because you're right on the margins of enemy territory. And the Lord spoke to Moses, verse 26, and to Aaron saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I've heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumbled against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you've said in my hearing, I will do to you. Remember what their complaints were? God says, so be it. He says, this is how you said I was going to treat you. And so this is what he responds, verse 29. He said, "Uh, your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness of all your number. They said, it'd be better that we died in the wilderness. And he said, fine die in the wilderness. He says, all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have, not, who have grumbled against me. So he doesn't hold the children accountable for this decision. They don't have any power or authority or the wisdom to make the decision. But anyone 20 or older is held accountable. Verse 30, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell except Caleb the son of Jephna and Joshua the son of Nun. But your little ones who you said would become prey, remember, you said if you go into the land your little ones would be hurt and harmed. I'm telling you, I will take them into the land and protect them, okay? Uh, Verse 32, but as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and shall suffer your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies live, lie in the wilderness. And so notice here, the children aren't held accountable for their parents' sins, but they do experience some of the consequences. For 40 years, they're going to live as wanderers as they grow up and wait for their parents to die, For 40 years, they're not going to enjoy their inheritance because of their parents' sin, but God will be faithful to them. Verse 34, according to the number of days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. Every day they saw the goodness of my promises in the land shall turn into a year of of wandering 
Verse 35, I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me in the wilderness. They shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land, the men who brought a bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord. And so their sentence comes immediately. Verse 38, of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephna remained alive. Now, what happens next is important. And this is where we'll finish tonight. Verse 39. When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. Okay. They were weeping. God responds to their weeping and they weep some more. But notice why, why they're mourning. Verse 40. They rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country saying, Here we are. We'll go up to the place that the Lord has promised for we've sinned. But Moses said, why are you now transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there's the Amalekites and the Canaanites facing you, and you shall fall by the sword, because you've turned your back from following the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. And so it looks like, in their words, like repentance. They say, oh, we were so wrong, we totally sinned, we're ready now, we'll go into the land, we'll fight And Moses says, no, this is just more rebellion. God has given his sentence and you're just trying to resist it. In fact, he says, why are you presuming against God? He continues here and notice what he says in verse 44. uh, Sorry, in in verse 43 there, um, he says, the Lord will not be with you. If you go, you go on your own. Verse 44, but they presumed to go up in the heights of the hill country, although neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp, and the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah, which is in the wilderness. What they do here is not repentance. It's what Paul calls in the New Testament worldly sorrow. They say, oh, these consequences are awful, and they try and reverse God's decision to avoid them. They care more about the consequences than they do their own sin. If you want a contrast for this behavior, consider David. David sins very deeply against God, against one of his top soldiers, Uriah, against the woman who, under the influence of the king, really can't say no, who he sleeps with and then impregnates, okay? And when God comes to him through Nathan the prophet and convicts him of this sin and says, look, this is what you've done, David responds in almost the same words, I've sinned against the Lord. And God does the same thing. He says, you're forgiven, but there's consequences. And the child, the child who you're waiting is going to die. And what David does is he begins to pray that God would be merciful and not take the life of that child until he hears the death of the child about it. And then he comes and he cleans himself up and he basically says, there's no reason to pray anymore. God's, God's decision has been made. It's final. And so he desires and he asks and he longs for God to stay the consequences of his own sin. And remember, those aren't just consequences for David. It's not just that he loses a son. Uriah has to deal, or sorry, Bathsheba has to deal with the consequences of this sin. This little baby's life is terminated because of the consequences of David's sin. But he comes humbly, not presumptuously, and he comes knowing where he stands in the courtroom, not on the judgment seat saying, God, here's the right way to judge, but in the dock under judgment, appealing 
to the judge for mercy. And so here, we don't even see a change of heart. And so we get more evidence of why it's appropriate that they would wander in the wilderness. And God patiently just waits for them to die. They live out lives with the same provision that God had promised. We're told later in the book of Deuteronomy that none of their clothes wore out on the journey. He just waits. But we now find ourselves in the first major pause in the Bible story. Forty years delay until God can continue the plan because of the sin of people. And so we have to walk that journey with them. And the reason, once again, is because these are examples for us to learn of. And all of us have positions of influence, responsibility, authority. All of us have the same rebellious streak, temptations, uh, deep cravings, as it says in this book, that can throw us off the track. And all of us have opportunities every day to trust and follow or rebel and resist. And so take those things to heart tonight. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word, because as Paul told us tonight in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, they were recorded for us. They were written down for us as examples, so we would not be like the Israelites were. But we know in our heart of hearts that we are like them, and so even now, God, we ask for your forgiveness, and we praise you for your faithfulness even when we are faithless. We praise you for your patience, and I ask even tonight boldly that you would lay fingers on places in our life where there's ongoing sin and rebellion that you want to deal with. And we just want to confess, Lord, that um, that as horrible as the picture is in the book of Numbers, it's also a testimony to your goodness. It's a testimony to your justice and your patience and your devotedness to bring off your plan. And despite everything we do that goes against the grain of your will, you will accomplish your good for us. And we praise you for that in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.